Our sermon this morning will be from Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 41. So quite a lengthy text this morning. I won't comment on every verse, uh, but we're going to read every verse together this morning. Give you a little context before we read it. Paul is on one of his journeys traveling around to some of the churches that he um, had been a part of planting, and he finds himself to be in the city of Ephesus in the province of Asia. Um, And he has spent some two years there now teaching and preaching, doing gospel in Ephesus. And so where we pick up in the text is after this, uh, as a part of this time that Paul is spending there in Ephesus, it draws to a close, uh, some pretty crazy things pop off in Ephesus. And so uh, beginning in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, let's read down through verse 41 together. Luke writes these words, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Earlier this week, I brought my truck in to get an oil change uh, at a local vendor here in town. And uh, whenever they had finished with the oil change, they brought my keys back to me and gave me the paperwork. And they said, sir, I want you to be aware, we believe that you have a leaky water pump. And I said, okay. So we saw coolant pooling down a little bit in the pan underneath the engine. So you might want to get that checked out. And so I picked up the phone and I called one of our resident mechanics here at Redeemer. And he said, hey man, I, I can't get you in until next week. We are slammed. He said, but go out there, take a look at your radiator, open my radiator cap. He said, do you see any coolant? I said, no. He said, go to the store and buy some and put it in there. And so I went to the store, bought some and put it in there. And he said, check it every night before you go to bed to make sure that it's holding. And so I would check it every night. And every couple of nights I had to add more coolant because sure enough, it was leaking. It was dripping down underneath my vehicle. And so he said, hey, listen, I can get you in Monday, but I can't, get you in, can't squeeze you in until then, so just keep adding it as it leaks. Keep filling it back up. Right? And the same problem that my water pump has, we as people often have, and particularly in churches have, because I don't know who coined the phrase, but somebody more wise and brilliant than I once said this, that vision leaks. That vision leaks. And so as a result, you have to constantly fill it back up. And so this morning, what I want to do is recast vision for us as a church from this passage that I've preached before several years ago now, um, but it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I guess I could probably say that about every passage that I preach, but it's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures because of the things that are taking place here. And we, last fall, we, we, we set out a vision for us over the next five years of ministry as a church. And we talked about the next five. And we said over the next five years, we want to really give ourselves to several things. First of all, reaching our neighbors with the good news of the gospel. We will also not only want to reach neighbors, but we want to raise disciples whose lives and loves are ordered around Jesus and we also want to launch leaders, raise up and train and equip and send out other pastors and ministry leaders into churches or church plants within our region or within our nation. 
And we said we also want to find and fund a permanent home from which we would have a kind of forward operating base, so to speak, a place that we could gather within our community to celebrate the goodness of Christ Sunday after Sunday, and from which we could be sent into our community to engage as missionaries, inviting people to come and see and hear this Jesus that we have met. So in this vision, we've, we've talked about for a long time at Redeemer of wanting to help create kingdom culture, or ca- or be a catalyst for gospel culture within our community. And I believe in this particular text in Acts chapter 19, it reminds us of how this happens, of how we go about putting our feet on the path of seeing that vision fulfilled. Because in this text, the, 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 I think the overall argument of this text as we work our way through it is this, is that the gospel creates culture through conversion. The gospel has the power to create culture through conversion. Listen, in verses 23 to 41, we find an incident recorded that has fascinated me for a very, very long time. It's been one of those kind of benchmark passages as I've thought about life, as I've thought about ministry in the context of local churches. Because here, Paul's been in Ephesus for over two years now. Because he was in the synagogue for a number of months until they drove him out of there as he'd been preaching about the kingdom of God. And so he goes into the hall of Tyrannus and he spends two years there teaching and preaching those who gathered to hear him speak. And so his ministry in the city over the course of that two-year span has led to this very pivotal point at the end of Acts chapter 19 that incites a riot within the city of Ephesus. Now, the reason that riot is incited is because Ephesus was home to one of the ancient wonders of the world known as the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was a Greco-Roman goddess who was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto. Tuck that away somewhere. That's a gem you can chew on later, right? But this temple was 127, was, was composed of 127 marbled pillars right, that stood 60 feet high and supported this gorgeous, ornate ceiling. And many of these pillars were inlaid with gold and rare gems. It was a costly production. This huge canopy of the temple covered an area 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width. And it housed this statue of Artemis, which was supposedly have been a rock that fell from the stars, a goddess who fell from the heavens. Ephesus, Strabo, who was a Greek historian who lived around the time of the birth of Christ, he wrote that the goddess received her name because she made people Artemis, that is safe and sound. So she became to be associated with health and with help of all sorts and various kinds. And she was worshipped because of her perceived lordship over all the supernatural powers. So Artemis, in a very real sense, was seen as a source of blessing to the Ephesians. She was seen as a source of security to the Ephesians and a source of identity to the Ephesians and the whole province of Asia. Now look, any time someone perceives something to be central to their security and their identity, someone's going to find a way to make money off of it. (laughs) Any time. And this was true in Ephesus. There was a guy by the name of Demetrius. He was likely the head of the silversmiths guild in Ephesus. And one of their main money makers was the forging of these small statues, these figurines of the goddess 
Artemis for people to purchase. They could take home. They could put on their own altars in their own homes. And Paul's preaching of the gospel in Ephesus, it posed a problem for Demetrius and the craftsman's livelihood. He says, you know, right? He says to all the craftsmen, you know that it's from these statues that we make our wealth, he says in the text. So these idols that Paul is now instructing and preaching and proclaiming to be these, 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 these not gods at all. These gods made by human hands. He says they're not gods at all. This is what Paul's been telling people across the province of Asia. And it's not hard to imagine Paul saying this in Ephesus because he says it in Lystra, he says it in Athens, in Acts chapter 14, and Acts chapter 17. And so the people in Ephesus and across the province of Asia that had begun to respond to Paul's preaching of the gospel, they stopped buying the statues. They stopped, and so the profits of those craftsmen began to dry up. And listen, anytime something threatens the economy, what happens? People get very hot and bothered. And that's what happens in Ephesus. They respond, they were enraged. In verse 28, that's what we're told. They erupt in anger, and as a result, they begin to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And now this commotion that starts in the street begins to centralize into the city theater. And this great crowd begins to draw into the theater. And at this point, listen, I don't know if you're familiar with, some of you may be, with the old cartoon Scooby-Doo, right? Scooby had a little nephew named Scrappy, all right? And Scrappy went looking for a fight everywhere that he went. He would always have his hands up like this saying, let me at him, let me at him. And that's what Paul's saying, right? That's how Paul feels. He's like, let me go out there and address this massive crowd. Now, some archaeologists believe that the city theater in Ephesus could have seated up to 25,000 people. Okay? American Airlines Center seats 20,000. So think the American Airlines Center filled with people chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This goddess whose statue, the temple, is there in Ephesus. They're all chanting and they're riled up and enraged. And Paul's saying, let me at them. Let me at them. I want to go say something to all of these people who are gathered here in this city center. And yet the believers who were with Paul, right? they're trying to dissuade him from that desire. In fact, some of the Asiarchs were told, who were high-ranking officials in the province of Asia, they are appealing to Paul, saying, don't do it. It's not going to end well for you, Paul, if you go out there right now. And so they restrict him from going out. But at this point, one of the Jewish leaders in Ephesus decide, hey, we'd better separate ourselves from what these Christians are doing because we don't want to be associated with this. And so, I don't know how they decided who would go out there, if they drew straws, if they played paper, rock, scissors, but somehow Alexander's the guy. He's going to go out there in front of the crowd. So they send this Jew named Alexander out, and as soon as the crowd realizes that he is a Jew, what do they begin to do? Scream more loudly, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. You guys think I preach for a long time. Two hours, they're chanting there in the city theater. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Eventually, the city clerk, one of the highest ranking officials in the city of Ephesus, comes out and quiets the crowd by trying to downplay the influence of Paul's gospel ministry. He says, listen, no matter what Paul says, you know what's true, right? 
This statue fell from the heavens. It's one of the goddesses who's come to bless us. We find our security in her. All the earth worships her. We're the home. The temple is here. There is nothing that he can do. And he says, in fact, you're all at risk. We all are at risk of being charged with inciting a riot. We've got courts for this. And if you have any further charges against Paul or against any of his associates, bring them through the courts, take them before the proconsuls. let us legally weigh those, and we will make decisions. But at this point, they have not, he says, they're not guilty of blaspheming Artemis, they're not guilty of subverting her, and so he dismisses the crowd, and they go home. Now, despite the city clerk's downplaying of the gospel ministry Paul had in Ephesus and in the larger province. Listen, his ministry there had a catalytic impact on the culture. A catalytic impact on the culture. Now, I don't know if you remember your middle school science classes about what a catalyst is, but a catalyst is something that speeds up or initiates change, right? But it, it, it in and of itself is not changed in the process. It's a catalyst. And that's what the gospel is in Ephesus. It's a catalyst for cultural change, cultural impact. It brings about change without being changed because if the gospel gets changed, it can no longer bring about the kind of change it's designed to bring. But Paul's been preaching the gospel and there's a catalytic impact that it has. Right? And this is the kind of impact Paul's gospel ministry has across the province of Asia and here in Ephesus. As he's preaching... People are being converted. They're being persuaded of the truth of his message. Right? And as a result, their lives are being transformed. They're being converted to Christ. Right? And, 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 and because they're being converted to Christ, they're giving up on their other gods. Because their loves, their affections are being changed. They have new loves now. Right, you've probably seen this if you've seen a teenage boy who gets a crush on a teenage girl. At some point, their life begins to miraculously change overnight. Right? Whereas before, you had to persuade them to take a shower more than once a week. Now they're showering every day. Twice a day. Right? You had to bribe them to wear deodorant. Now they're put lathering that stuff on so much that whenever they get in the car with you, you can smell the old spice coming out of their pits, right? Like you have to go and ask them to wash the car. Now, because they want to go out on a date with this striking young lady, they go out and they wash the car twice a week all on their own accord, right? Oh, something's changing because externally in their behavior. Why? Because something's changing internally in their desires, in their affections. And that's what happens, church, on a grand scale, much bigger scale in the life of someone who meets Christ. When they meet Jesus, their affections are changed. And as a result of this internal change that spills over externally, and whenever you have a city that's being impacted through gospel ministry, these individual converts and their life choices now, their decisions are reshaping the entire culture. And so Demetrius says, we've got a problem. Because the gospel is changing culture through conversion. And it results in at least these two things. We see them in the text. First of all, it results in the name of Jesus being hallowed. 
The name of Jesus is hallowed. To hallow someone means to bless them, to revere them, to respect them, to set them apart or consecrate them. And this is what's happening to the name of Jesus as Paul carried out his ministry here in the province of Asia. In verses 11 and 12, God is doing miraculous things through Paul. We'll talk about those in a moment. And then in verses 13 to 17, these Jewish exorcists, they try to get in on this deal. Okay, so they try to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out evil spirits in the lives of individuals. We read about it in verses 13 to 17. This is what it says. I'll read it for you again. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then Luke goes on to tell us, he says, there were these seven sons of this high priest named Schemus. Uh, they were adjuring these, adjuring these evil spirits in the name of Jesus to come out. And they come across this one guy who's got an, an evil spirit. And that evil spirit responds to these seven sons of Sceva by saying, Listen, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I have no idea who you are. And then he overpowers them, beats them down, right, and sends them away with their tails tucked between their legs, bleeding and naked. And then we're told in verse 17 that all of this became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And it says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Now, in Luke's gospel, which is the companion volume to the book of Acts, you have this stunning contrast with this story. Because in in Luke chapter 8, you find the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And Jesus encounters this man who had been living among the tombs, had been cutting himself, crying out night and day. And no one could help him. And in Luke chapter 8, the demoniac was delivered from a whole legion of demons. Jesus cast out. He was delivered from a state of nakedness. He was delivered. Delivered from a state of of, of mental instability, put back in his right mind and delivered from his existence among the tombs so that he returns home dressed in verse 35 of Luke 8 and in his right mind. So Jesus casts out a whole legion of demons and restores this man to wholeness. But in Acts chapter 19, you've got a whole host of exorcists, right, going to address this one evil spirit And they were vanquished by the demon and they run away naked, injured, and degraded. Now look, I don't care who you are, but if you go into a fight fully clothed and you run away naked afterwards, you lost. Okay? You lost. And that's what happens here. And in verse 17, we see that because of this, that the people, this holy fear falls upon the people and they respond by elevating and exalting and hallowing the name of Jesus, extolling Jesus, declaring Him to be great, rejoicing him in Him, giving Him praise, magnifying Him. And I believe the reason the people respond this way is because when they see that Jesus is not like an amulet, that Jesus is not like a relic, to be used for our own purposes and ends, they are struck with this holy fear. And they begin to worship and honor and extol and hallow the name of Jesus. Now all this happens prior to the riot in Ephesus. Okay, prior to the riot. And I believe it leads to that riot. 
And here's why I believe it leads to that right. It's because whenever the name of Jesus is hallowed, it is set apart, it is consecrated, what it does is it has a hollowing effect. Because here's what happens. It begins to hollow out all the other little G-gods in our lives and in our culture. When Jesus is set in His rightful place and hallowed as He ought to be, then those things become very, very hollow and empty. So as you had these individuals who had worshipped Artemis, buying statues from the silversmiths, the silversmiths begin to realize they're losing profits because, because of Paul's ministry and because of the way that Jesus' name was being extolled, Artemis was becoming hollow. She was, see, she was becoming to be seen for what she actually was, which was no God at all. She was no longer filled with the significance she once had in the lives of Paul's converts. And listen, the same happens to us as well. Whenever the name of Jesus is hallowed, when the name of Jesus is lifted high, when the name of Jesus is rejoiced in, when we delight in Him, what we find is that it begins to carve out all the other personal idols and cultural idols that we have. It has a hollowing effect on those things. Think about a personal idol in your life. Think about a cultural idol within our society. And there is not a single one that can stand whenever Jesus is extolled to be as He is for who He is. All of a sudden, your body image doesn't matter as much. It becomes more and more hollow. All of a sudden, right? Your bank account doesn't matter as much. It becomes more and more hollow. All of a sudden, fashion and vacation aren't as central to your life. They become more and more hollow. All of a sudden, your dream home, right? This, this thing that we have in our minds, which, by the way, most of us never achieve because we always want something better than what we've got. But your dream home becomes less and less significant. It gets hollowed out as the name of Jesus is hallowed. And when that begins to take place in lives of God's people who are part of a larger culture, what happens? There's a cultural change and the norms of a place become different because of the ongoing ministry of the gospel. That's what's happening in the text. The name of Jesus is hallowed. And the second thing that happens that we see in the text is that people turn from sin. People turn from sin. Now, sin comes in a variety of shapes and forms. Like we're all, Most of us are aware of that reality. But I, like, I, I want to highlight two of them that I think we see here in this text. And the first one is this, that people begin to turn from their own self-interest. Their own self-interest. In verses 18 and 19, we read these, this, these words that after the name of Jesus is hallowed, He's extolled, what happens? These people who are believers now, 
They come confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now listen, this is not the same thing as collecting all of your 8-tracks, all of your vinyl records, all of your CDs, all of your cassette tapes, right? On that, 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 that Wednesday night that you got home from youth camp the previous week and you were on this spiritual high and you're going to burn every rock and rap album that you had, right? And you brought them to the fire, you squirted the lighter fluid on those things, threw a match and phew, they're engulfed. It's not the same thing. It's not... Because when these believers came confessing and divulging their practices, they were giving up on manipulating and controlling their lives through spells and incantations to achieve their own self-interests. See, in the ancient world, magic was the way in which you sought to control your life. It's the way you sought to achieve your own self-interest. So if you wanted something that God has not, had not given, what did you do? You repeated a spell. You used an incantation. You went and visited a sorcerer. So why do you think that in Paul's list of some of the, some of the, the, the works of the flesh throughout other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, he lists, lists sorcery? Because sorcery is an attempt to manipulate and control your life. God has not given it so I can find a spell that will give me what I want to achieve my own self-interest. Now, what would happen if we were to confess and divulge our practices to each other and abandon our own self-interest in attempts to manipulate our reality? Now, most of you are like, man, I don't have a book of spells at home. What am I supposed to do? I, I, I hadn't been to the psychic recently, so tell me what's going on. Listen, in the ancient world, the way people sought to manipulate their reality was through magic. But in the modern world, we seek to do it through the self-help industry. Books full of techniques. I believe C.S. Lewis was spot on when he said this. For the wise of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. Lewis says the biggest issue for previous generations was how do I, knowing what I know about my objective reality, the place in which I live, the experiences that I have, how do I conform my objective reality? And he says the issue that, that you, what you needed in order to do that, to deal with the realities that you were, been, you were facing, the hand that you'd been dealt, was wisdom. It was discipline. As you, as you bore suffering. Listen, I'm glad I live in a day and age of air conditioning. But there was a time before air conditioning and before refrigeration. And so what did you do? You sweat a lot. As you worked the fields in order to bring crops in so that you could have a meal that night sometimes. That's objective reality. And he says those wise men of old, they were trying to understand how to respond to the objective reality they had. He says, but, he goes on, he doesn't stop. He says, for the modern, 
The cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. So, not how do I conform my soul to the objective reality, how do I deal with the hard realities of life? That's no longer, that's no longer the pursuit of man. The pursuit of man is now, how do I conform the reality outside of me to the wishes that I have inside of me? How do I make everything outside of me serve what I want and reflect me? And Lewis says, for them, it's not wisdom and self-discipline. For them, it's a technique. And if you don't believe me, just look at the shelves of any bookstore and look at all of the books on techniques, how-to's in the self-help section. We may not have books of spells at home, but I can guarantee you there is still that innate desire to control our reality through And the self-help industry is tapped into that within our culture. So they turn from their own self-interest, but second of all, they turn from materialistic pursuits. In verse, verse 19, the latter part of verse 19, it says, and they counted the value of them. These are the books that they burned, scrolls that they burned. And they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, you probably don't feel the weight of that. Some of your translations may say drachmas, Okay? But a drachma in the Roman world was a day's wage. So let's do the math and try to bring it into our context a little bit. So you got 50,000 divided by 365. Okay, day's wage, 50,000 of them, and you get 137. So 137 years of wages. Take that 137 and multiply it by, uh, let's say, $50,000 in our context. And you come to $6,850,000. That's what was going up in flames. Now you may think, well, they could have sold it. Right? They could have sold all those things. And they could have used the money to feed the poor. They could have used the money in order to build churches. They could have used the money to support mission. But what they refused to do is to take their sin and pass it on to someone else for a material profit. They turn from materialistic pursuits and the burning of those books. So you got people howling the name of Jesus, people turning from sin. And the way I believe that all of this begins to take place and take shape in the in the city of Ephesus, and this is where it's, this is where I believe that we can begin to see some of these kinds of realities in our lives as well, is through these two things. And I'll close with them. First of all. We must learn to trust in the power of God. In verses 11 and 12, Luke writes, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or that he had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is not a text to defend prayer cloth and sweat rag ministries. I don't have a handkerchief that I wipe the sweat of my brow and send it out to you so that you can touch your skin with it and be healed of your diseases. Rather, I believe this is a text that demonstrates how the power of God was working, not in an ordinary way, but in an extraordinary way, in a place and in a time. I don't believe this is a prescription for us to start our own prayer cloth ministry. 
but rather it's describing what God was doing in that place and in that time through this extended ministry that Paul had had among the Ephesians. People were being healed. They were being made whole. It was a fresh manifestation of God's power. And I want to tell you something, church. Those do break through from time to time and place to place amongst people. See, some of us, we, we, get, we get very nervous around the extraordinary manifestations of God's power. Perhaps because we've watched people try to manipulate that. While God does tend to work through ordinary means week after week after week after week in our lives, Right? If he didn't work through ordinary means, I would not be up here before you preaching. If he didn't work through ordinary means, we would not recommend that you read the Bible. If he didn't work through ordinary means, we would not have prayer gatherings before church and on Sunday evenings. If he didn't work through ordinary means, then many of the things that we do as a part of the disciplines of our Christian life would be worthless. He works through ordinary means. But there are times and places in which the power of God is manifested in extraordinary ways, sometimes through those ordinary means and sometimes outside of them. And church, if we're going to see the kind of culture-shaping conversions, then we must learn to trust in the power of God in its ordinary means, but also in its extraordinary manifestations. But second of all, we've got to commit ourselves to teach the Word of God. I want you to look at the emphasis on Paul's extended teaching and preaching ministry in Ephesus, both the Jews and Greeks in this passage. If you go back a little bit before in, in, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, it says, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul goes into the Jewish synagogue, he begins to open the scriptures, and he reasons with them from the Old Testament scriptures about God's kingdom that has been manifest now in the person of Christ. At some point, the Jews were like, we've heard enough, get out of here. And so they run Paul out of the synagogue. He goes and sets up shop in the hall of Tyrannus, and then in verse 10 of Acts 19, it says, This continued, Paul's teaching and preaching there, for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then after everyone gathers together to burn all their books, in verse 20, we're told, so the word, Luke says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Increase and prevail mightily. Luke says two things about the word of the Lord in verse 20. It continued to increase. In other words, it spread from person to person and people to people. Context to context. But also, secondly, it prevailed mightily. In other words, when it came up against other worldviews, when it came up against other perceived sources of power and security and identity, it overcame them. It overcame them. Because when God speaks, church, things happen. You see it all throughout the Bible. Go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And whenever God opens His mouth and speaks, what happens? He creates. 
He begins to make and form the earth by the power of his word. In Genesis 2, when God creates our first father, he forms him from the dust of the ground. Then he does what? He breathes spirit into him so that he comes to life. In the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, who's pastoring, guess where? In Ephesus. And this is what he says to him. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Exhaled by God. So in the same way that whenever God breathes our first Father, the Spirit into Him to give Him life, God is breathing new life into all kinds of people by His power through His Word. Because things happen. The text in 2 Timothy teaches us that Scriptures are literally God exhaled. It's what powerful to bring new life. And I've seen this firsthand. Some of you have as well. Had an opportunity a number of years ago to travel to Russia to be an encouragement to pastors and churches there. And a part of our time that we spent in Moscow was going from apartment to apartment, flat to flat. And because we were Americans, we weren't necessarily trusted by many of the Russians. And so what they wanted us to do before we did any kind of teaching, right, before we did any kind of equipping or encouraging was to go visit the widows. And so we went from flat to flat visiting these widows who were part of the church. And as we spoke with them, we began to hear story after story. Obviously, I couldn't speak Russian. We had a translator who relayed information. But they would tell us, I heard the same story so many times, that during the regime of the communists in Russia, the church was still there. It was just underground, largely. And many of them had come into contact with the Bible that they had found in their uncle's trunk or their grandfather's right, uh, armoire. And as they opened the Bible and they began to read the Scriptures, outside of commentaries to explain what it meant, outside of churches that they could gather with publicly to hear it preached, outside of small group Bible studies where they could gather and discuss its meaning, outside of any of the Western helps that you have had, that I have had, that as they read the Scriptures themselves, God lit the flame. He breathed life into them, causing them to be born again. To believe on Jesus. Because God's Word is powerful, church. And so when Paul's preaching and teaching the Word of God in one place for over two years, you begin to see people be converted, extolling Jesus' name, hallowing Him, hollowing out the cultural idols, turning from sin, because God's power had manifested itself in their presence. Listen, the church stands alone as the people of God who are formed by the Word of God in the world that God has created. There are all sorts of governmental agencies who do great work in the lives of people, but none of them are centered on God's Word. They may feed the poor and clothe and heal sick people and provide shelter. They do all kinds of great social work, but they don't equip people spiritually because they're not centered on God's Word. The church is the only, only 
organization that God has sanctioned for the continuation of His ministry in the church. All other parachurches, parachurch ministries, great though they are, they don't replace the church. And they don't replace a church that's centered on the teaching of the Word of God and trusting in the power of God to bring about change in the places where He's planted them. So recasting vision for us this morning. Let me ask you a question. Who else wants to see a fresh manifestation of the power of God in our midst? Who else wants to see an ongoing gospel witness in this community, not only for our generation, but for the next generation and the generation after that, should the Lord tarry? That's why we're here, church. That's why we're here. To reach our neighbors, to raise disciples, to launch leaders. To put our hands to the plow of the work that God has called us to as a church. Through the teaching of His Word, through trusting in His power. And seeing the Gospel create culture through conversion as people turn from their cultural idols to hallow Jesus above all. That's why we're here. Let's not forget it. I have to remind myself every once in a while because it leaks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for not only sacrifice, but we thank you for the way he's present and active through the person of the Holy Spirit even now. Father, we ask that you would help stop up some of the leaks for us regarding why we're here and what we want to see happen in this community. Father, we do want to see individuals converted through the ministry of your church. And as more and more converted, we want to see a change in the culture around us. But Father, I pray that we would not solely locate that change in the change that would take place in the lives of new converts, but that we would also recognize that there is some leftover personal idol, idolatry, and cultural idolatry in our own lives. And that as we repent from those things, as we turn from those things, to hallow the name of Jesus afresh in our lives in 2022. May we be a part, by the power of your Holy Spirit, of the change that we want to see take place in our community. Help us to trust in your power, God, to long for fresh manifestations of it. Help us not to despise the ordinary means. But Father, help us also not to despise the extraordinary manifestations. 
May we be a church that renews week after week our commitment to an ongoing teaching ministry of your word. Trusting it will bring new life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.